0: The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria,
1: Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au.
0: So, nice to see you all here. And we just did the most important part, <laughs> I think, of today, taking the precepts and uh, the three refuges because it's always uh, I always enjoy it to give the, the precepts to people because it means you're intending to to do well in the world to uh, abide by these precepts means you avoid a lot of harmful things that other people might uh, might not avoid so Therefore, I always take some time also to appreciate when I give the five precepts, to appreciate that you're all here to take them and uh, to never, never uh, take that for granted. In the Buddhist world, we often have people, uh, they they take the five precepts and I meet so many nice people uh, who, who abide by these. We not to steal, not to kill living beings, not to lie, etc. You know what they are. Um, but uh, I, can, I can take it for granted sometimes to meet all these nice people. But not everybody in the world uh, does that. So thank you all for taking those precepts. So as I said, I think that is, in a way, is the most important part of today. <laughs> and the rest is extra, <laughs> whatever else I do. You already did your part, and uh, now I just uh, give you uh, a little talk. And the talk today will be a continuation of last week. Uh, Last week I talked about mindfulness in the suttas. And even if you weren't here last week, or for those online, if you haven't listened to last week's talk, you can, I think, just take this talk as is, you don't have to really know what I spoke about last week but if this interested interests you, you can check it out on the internet. I will give a short repetition of what I did last week first and then I'll give some extra details. So mindfulness in the suttas, well why, first of all, why do I talk about this here? Uh, instead of a normal Dhamma talk, this is going to be more about the suttas, so it's be a bit like a sutta class. The reason is that I was supposed to teach these classes in Western Australia at, the, at the, about this time of the year, but I can't go back there because of the COVID restrictions. So I decided to do it here instead in a bit of a condensed format. and. Uh, I didn't know how well it was going to go down, but last week I got some nice uh, feedback, so I decided I continue. Uh, seems like people learning something new, which is always good. So mindfulness in the suttas. So last week, I took, uh, I took the, a common understanding of mindfulness that I don't think is the same as the Buddha's. And I took this common understanding that mindfulness is non-judgmental awareness of the present moment, which is what we often hear in uh, nowadays in teachings. Uh, especially, uh, it seems to be a lot uh, online, you, you see this. Uh, mindfulness presented as just awareness of whatever arises. Also called sometimes bare awareness. You just accept whatever comes into you Uh, your mind, whatever thoughts come up or whatever feelings come up in the body and you just look at them, non-judgmentally means you don't uh, do anything about it, you just accept them as they are and last week I argued that this is not mindfulness as taught by the Buddha that is not to say that this practice isn't useful, it has a place and it's even found in the Buddha's uh, teachings as well but then it's called equanimity, the practice of uh, just being aware and um, non-judgmentally. That means not reacting uh, with uh, preconceived notions or uh, um, not not reacting is how you could call it. So in the Buddha's text that is uh, called equanimity, which is the... The Pali word for that is upeka, and upeka literally means to look on. Yeah, so you, you just look on at whatever is going on in your mind or your meditation, and that is upeka, but that is not mindfulness per se in the suttas. So I took apart this standard uh, non Buddhist understanding of mindfulness as non judgmental awareness of the present moment. I want to take that apart a bit because it's so standard and so ingrained that it even found its way back into Buddhism. It's sort of uh, even Buddhist traditions are much influenced by this, and I think to understand what mindfulness is in the in the suttas, you first have to know what it isn't so by explaining what it what is wrong about this uh this understanding I hope to explain also what mindfulness is by explaining what it isn't. So uh, last week we looked first at, so we're questioning this, and we first looked at is mindfulness non-judgmental? By non-judgmental, we had a, uh, had a bit of a discussion about that, but non-judgmental is usually understood in this context as just uh, your awareness just looks at whatever happens in your meditation or, uh, in your life, and that it doesn't react to it, doesn't try to change it. And I would agree that I would say that is not uh, not mindfulness as it's taught by the Buddha, because, for example, take this quote: Just like the gatekeeper of a king's frontier citadel is smart, competent, and clever in order to protect its inhabitants and ward off the foreigners, the outsiders. The noble students are mindful. With mindfulness as their gatekeeper, they abandon what is unwholesome and blamable, develop what is wholesome and blameless, and protect their purity. So here mindfulness is compared to a gatekeeper or a guard. Somebody who stands in front of the door, here is a citadel, stands in front of the gate, and keeps out the bad guys, And allows in the good guys. So this is also a function of meditation, uh, of mindfulness in meditation. You let in the good, wholesome mind states, and you try to avoid the unwholesome mind states. Uh, So in this sense, you could say mindfulness is not just looking on at whatever comes into your mind. It actually as to have some sort of uh, discernment. That's the, ter- the term we decided on last week together. Mindfulness needs to some, have some, uh, some evaluation sometimes to see what kind of thoughts or what kind of uh, mind states are wholesome to develop and which kinds are not. For example... This morning I was meditating and when I first started meditating I started thinking about uh, an email somebody sent me a while ago and I was thinking about how should I reply to that? (laughs) Is that a good meditation or not? Would you say that's wholesome meditation? I would say well... Not, not really. It's not really the point of meditation to think about an email that somebody sent you in the past. So I was basically thinking of the past there. and As soon as I realized that, I just said to my mind, no, it's a waste of time to think about that right now. You know, Do that later. And I've, and I've been doing this so, so often in my meditation that my mind just listens and just stops thinking about the email straight away then i started thinking oh what shall i talk about in the talk today <laughs> what shall i say again it's nothing wrong with that kind of thought per se but if you're meditating uh, maybe not then you know maybe <laughs> maybe pick another moment to think about that uh, actually i don't think about to pre- don't prepare too much in these talks I actually prepare quite a lot the slides but usually we just improvise the talks and even right now i'm sort of uh, improvising, I haven't really thought about what I'm going to say exactly, but anyway, when you sit down and meditation just before a talk, then it's of course natural that you kind of think about uh, what should I talk about, but I, no, I just stop that, I tell my mind, no, that's just not the right time, it's, it will be much more uh, fruitful to just stay uh, in the present, don't think too much, and uh, develop instead joy and kindness, instead of all the distractions, develop peace. So that's what the Buddha is talking about here, when he compares mindfulness to a gatekeeper. You could use mindfulness as a gatekeeper to keep out certain thoughts that are not useful in your meditation. So it's not just being non-judgmental and allow whatever thoughts to come up. It's actually quite the opposite. You actually... Uh, try to avoid skillfully I try to avoid certain thoughts yeah? I have to be a bit, a bit careful when I teach this because often when people uh, hear something like this they become very controlling in their mind and very uh, uh, fault finding when they have a thoughts come up and they're like oh, I should not think Yeah, and then it, that is also unwholesome actually to Uh, things like that because then it just develops into kind of ill will and uh, then you have to realize okay this attitude of blaming myself for certain thoughts or um, getting annoyed that is also unwholesome mind state it's also something you should abandon so then again mindfulness comes in and remembers okay this is not Something I should develop. I should develop something else instead. Yeah? Should develop is acceptance, kindness. Those kind of qualities. So this is just one quote of the suttas here that you see on the slides. Where mindfulness is very uh, explicitly said to not be non-judgmental actually. It's actually said explicitly to make some sort of Certain choices. And I gave you much more examples last week. This don't want to make this a whole repetition of last week. So this is just one of the quotes. And this morning it reminded me actually of uh, a quote by an American, uh, one of the first people who set up psychology in America. And this was William James, actually quite uh, famous. He did a lot of... uh, research also into psychic phenomena and those kind of things. And he said the greatest weapon against stress is the ability to to choose one thought over another. And stress in his time, I think I'm not native English so I could have this wrong, but I think stress in his time had a not the very specific meaning of anxiety that we have today, like stress job stress or whatever, but I think in his time, stress meant more like suffering, mental suffering in in a more wider, general way. So what he was saying, uh, the ability to choose one thought over another is uh, a weapon against stress or against suffering. It's quite the opposite of nowadays. Very often the first approach is just allow whatever thoughts to come up. So interesting that the, here he, he says something quite different. Seems like there's now a, a current in psychology where they teach mindfulness. It's almost the exact opposite of this. And then just like 10 minutes before the talk, I, rem, I remembered, oh, the Buddha actually said exactly the, almost exactly the same thing in one of the suttas. So I had to send uh, Langdon a correction of the slides to, to add this quote by the Buddha. This bhikkhu, when he's abandoning the five hindrances to meditation, I'll explain those a bit more in detail later, is then called a master of the courses of thought. He will think whatever thought he wishes to think, and he will not think any thought that he does not wish to think. It's saying, I think maybe uh, this William James had read the suttas <laughs> No, he probably didn't But uh, because no translations existed at the time yet in English, I don't think Or it was very hard to come by anyway But you see, uh, the Buddha also said something uh, like I was explaining to you before you, de- you decide, okay, this thought is not helpful So uh, you do not think the thought, you do not wish to think, and you think whatever you do want to think. And this actually, this quote, I've taken it out of a wider context because I can't quote you the whole sutta, but it's clearly that this also takes the place of uh, mindfulness in this this sutta. This is the sutta on abandoning the uh, unwholesome thoughts. Majjhima Nikaya 20, it's quite a nice sutta, not too long, so I recommend you to read it. And you'll see it's about abandoning these kind of thoughts that I had this morning in meditation. And that you actually uh, find a skillful way around, uh, around those distractions. So mindfulness, in that sense, you choose what you want to think. I don't want to think. Um, But it goes much beyond thinking as well. So mindfulness, you can also decide, for example, I will focus on the breath in my meditation. So then you set up like a guard that makes sure that your meditation stays with the breath. So then it's also in a sense, I would say, is in a sense... uh, Mindfulness makes like a discernment as to have some, uh, make some sort of judgment in a way uh, about these thoughts or about your meditation object. And it re- keeps in mind what you want to do in your meditation. Which of course can be many things. Like you can do metta meditation, breath meditation, abandoning the thoughts meditation, or developing certain thoughts meditation, whatever. There's hundreds of ways to meditate, but they always involve some kind of uh, remembering the goal that you want to achieve or uh, remembering the wider teachings of the Buddha, keeping in mind right view, what is wrong and right, etc. This is how mindfulness uh, plays in. And the literal translation of mindfulness would actually be something like remembrance. But I'll come back to that later. So after deciding about non-judgmental that that is not what the Buddha had in mind, we also looked at this common understanding that mindfulness is always about the present moment. That mindfulness is you focus on what is here right now. Again, very useful practice, but in the uh, in the suttas, is actually uh, not only about the present moment. You can also set up your mindfulness, your guard, for example, to think about something in the past. An example of this is the following quote: "A bhikkhu, here's the Dhamma. I'm here just always using uh, venerable Bodhis, uh, Bodhis translation, so you, just so you know, that's why the." Where word bhikkhu comes from. A bhikkhu, here's the dhamma, whenever bhikkhus, a bhikkhu dwelling does, meditating, does withdrawn, uh, that, that implies that he's meditating, recollects that dhamma and thinks it over. On that occasion, the enlightenment factor of mindfulness is aroused by the bhikkhu. So this is just one example of how Mindfulness can be practiced is when you actually remember the teachings of the Buddha. You actually, uh, especially in the time of the Buddha, you didn't have the books like we do now. So you really had to remember the talk. They didn't have any writing. They had to really recollect the teachings. And the Buddha says here that that is also uh, a way to practice mindfulness. For example, you meditate and you remember that anger is something you should abandon. That is with teaching by the Buddha. Uh, That is a way that you use your mindfulness. So this is just one of the suttas that shows that mindfulness can also be about the past. And I also talked about Mindfulness of death is one practice that is quite common in the suttas. And death is, of course, something in the future. Uh, unless you're dying right now. In which case, uh, if I die right now, then uh, this will be a very short talk. <laughs> but uh, usually death is in the future, right? So, but then you can still remember, in a way, to keep in mind the concept that, of death, that you're going to die. You sort of keep in mind the idea of the future when you meditate on death. Mm-hmm. So that is also mindfulness. It's called marana sati. Marana means death and sati is mindfulness. But it's better translated maybe as recollection of death or the remembrance of death, the keeping in mind this idea of death. So you also see mindfulness not just about present moment always no. i think that's quite important to uh, th- these concepts that i've talked about right now i think it's quite important to have this uh, wider understanding of how to be able to meditate or navigate your life using mindfulness because often it's I don't know how often, but it seems that quite common people give the solution when you have any sorts of problems. Okay, just focus on the present moment and uh, things will be okay. all all okay. (laughs) But uh, it's it's just one way to to, uh, develop your mind, to stay in the present. It's a very important one to practice because we have all these tendencies to think about the future and the past, which are not always useful. But sometimes it is very useful to think about the future or the past. Sometimes that can be wholesome. And that can also be mindfulness as well. As long as it's done within the, con- in, within the context of the uh, whole Eightfold Path, we can do these kind of practices. So, that is just one example of where I would say. Mindfulness is not just about present moment. If if you just have mindfulness, this idea of just present moment, non-judgmental awareness, I think it's very, very limited. You're limiting your practice to such a small part of the Buddha's uh, teachings. And that's why I want to give this emphasis that there's so much more you can do and you'll develop yourself much more quickly uh, if you... um, if you also use these other practices. And also, this is not so much a concern I have myself, but Venerable Sadoro, he listened to the talk online uh, last week, and he gave me a book about, it's called Mac Mindfulness. (laughs) And it has on the front, has a picture of the Buddha dressed up as the McDonald clown or something like that. (laughs) And it's... uh, it's a critique of when mindfulness is just thought as present moment awareness, you also lose out, that author would argue. Uh, I haven't read the whole book, just a few passages, but so I'm sorry if I misrepresented. but he uh, presents it uh, such that you miss out a, a, the important par, part of virtue uh, often. Because when you're non-judgmental, you can also be non-judgmental. Whatever you do is okay. <laughs> or he uh, also seems to miss out the very important aspect to actually do something about it when it's appropriate. And he focuses mainly on doing something in the world when it's necessary. But I would also say to actually act in your mind sometimes is important. Not, not just to be non-judgmental anywhere. So I hope i made that point now, uh, otherwise uh, still you can look at uh, last week's lecture. So those two things, that mindfulness is not non-judgmental and is not just about the present moment, those were the two main important things I wanted to get across last week and I would say also today. So If that's all you take home, that's excellent. But to go a bit deeper, I also wanted to look at the word awareness and then also the word mindfulness itself. Can we look at those in another light? To start off with awareness, is mindfulness just awareness? Then last week I showed you some quotes from both from the suttas and from contemporary teachers. that. No, mindfulness is not just awareness. It's often more thought of as remembering or keeping in mind. And just to summarize those quotes, I'll, I'll take uh, this one by Venerable Sujato who, who wrote Mindfulness may be characterized as the quality of mind that recollects and focuses awareness within an appropriate frame of reference, bearing in mind the what, why and how of the task at hand. So, for example, when I was meditating and thinking about the past and future, then you would say the appropriate frame of reference. I don't, don't know, I don't really like the term frame of reference too much myself, but I think what he's saying here, then the appropriate frame would be the present instead of thinking about the past or the future. So the what of the task at hand would be the present moment. So mindfulness recollects that that is what you should be doing. Or that's just one way to meditate. But if that's what you decide to do, then that is uh, what you do. And also why would you do that? Well, because it leads you to uh, be more peaceful. For example, and how you do it, your meditation techniques, for example staying with the breath could be one. It's hard to go into, uh, to to both keep this quite general and give you specific ideas of what it means, Uh, I find it a bit hard, Mm, because you see this quote is very general bearing in mind the what, why and how of the task at hand uh, can mean so many things and I don't want to limit it just to a few things so I hope you get some sense of what I'm talking about that you can apply this in your own meditation am I making any sense or is this all too vague? yeah? yeah? see people nodding, so that makes me uh, happy. So, may, any questions so far? Everybody's happy, so then I'll just continue this quote by Renaud uh, Sujato. Mindfulness as a mental quality plays a crucial role in recollecting the teachings and applying them to the present moment, thus supporting right view. For example, could, I'll just give you some more examples, for example could also mean you get annoyed, angry or something in your meditation, or just, uh, why do I have to sit here, can't I just do something else, and you just ill will starts arising, then you could just sit there and have ill will for your whole meditation session, I mean. By all means, I do, but uh, if you have been listening to the Buddha's teachings, then you'll recollect aha, this is not what the Buddha taught. Maybe I should try kindness instead. Use metta meditation. And the Buddha actually explicitly said that metta meditation is what you do when ill will arises, that's the practice you do then. So it's very specific, specific counter practice you have to do. By reminding one of what is right and wrong, it supports the sense of conscience, which is vital for virtue. So I gave last week the example of, of lying, for example. You're in a situation and somebody says something and your first in, intention is to sort of evade or lie, say some untruth. And if you remember, oh, I shouldn't lie because I took the precepts, (laughs) then that is also, in the suttas, is also mindfulness. So then you actually remember what you should be doing or not be doing. So it's vital for virtue in that sense. So that's just one example where it shows that mindfulness is not just awareness of the present moment. It's actually uh, much more than that. Well. If you are interested in these kind of ideas, then uh, just know I'm not the only one (laughs) with thesis like this. It's actually very, very common, and uh, you see here all these uh, various authors. And by the way, this claim I haven't read all this, but uh, (laughs) I am a very. uh, When I read something, I just read often just can find the, the relevant passages and just read those, and then you get very good idea of what the author was talking about but even here just the titles tell you uh, tell you a lot for example sati, mindfulness, really does mean memory we have here as one example Uh, mindfulness, memory and wisdom putting remembrance back into mindfulness the myth of the present moment uh, etc uh, critiques of bare Awareness. So I'll just leave this slide up for a little bit. And if you're interested, you can look these up uh, later. I think most of them are for free online and especially the one by uh, Rupert gethin on some definitions of mindfulness. If you're a bit more scholastic, like uh, I sometimes do. And this is a very good uh, one to read. Rupert Getting is the uh, is a professor at somewhere in England, I, I think, but he's also the um, president of the Pali Tech Society. So the Pali Tech Society, they publish the dictionaries and stuff. He's a very knowledgeable uh, person and uh, really goes into quite a detail what the sutta teach as mindfulness. And we'll come back to hi- him a bit later. So, well, mindfulness is not just awareness. That's basically what uh, I would say. Now the word mindfulness itself, it's just English word, right? The Buddha didn't use the word mindfulness, of course, because he didn't speak English. So I want to look a bit into this translation. It's so taken for granted. Everybody uses it. And I'm... I make some translations of suttas just mainly for myself, but also to use them in teachings like this. Uh, and I've been playing around with trying to avoid the word mindfulness. Let's just pretend that we did not have the word mindfulness in English. How would we translate it then? So I want to look now a little bit into that because actually especially when you're not uh, able to read the Pali texts or uh, Sanskrit or early Buddhist texts in whatever form, if you're not able to read them for yourself, then you're, you're not aware of how influential just certain choices of translation can be. Uh, because it's hard to see Mm. What choices translators have made, which are just a certain choice they've made. And it's even when you can read Pali, like me, and it's still... Translations can have so much power, actually. Just the words we use decide so much of how we understand the Buddha Dhamma. So, not saying that mindfulness is a wrong per se, but I just want to see, can we broaden our understanding of it just by being a bit more flexible with the translation itself. So to start, this is Bhikkhu Bodhi in a writing called, What Does Mindfulness Really Mean? He says, we take the rendering, that means the translation, the rendering mindfulness for the word sati so much for granted the word mindfulness itself is actually so vague and elastic that it serves almost as a cipher into which we can read virtually anything we want basically saying here yeah, the word mindfulness itself doesn't really have much meaning uh, except for the meaning that we give it and now we see teachers of meditation they do give it their own meaning when they say mindfulness is non-judgmental, non-judgmental present moment awareness they do give it a meaning which is not at all the meaning that the Buddha gave it but that is now what the word has come to mean to so many people including Buddhists. and that is just I would say because it itself is so vague the term and elastic maybe just me not being native english but in dutch which is my native language we don't have the word mindfulness and so when i first came across it mindfulness to me it didn't really mean much uh, and i don't know about you many of you i know are also not native english so you also got the word mindfulness just uh, it's, it's taken for granted as a translation, as Bodhi Bode says here, but it's also... Um, how do I put this? The word also... My mind is stuck a bit. The word also... It just itself I find... If you just take the word itself, the meaning is not very clear, let me put it that way. So now coming to this Rupert Gethin, which I talked about before, and he wrote, before mindfulness was the standard translation that now everybody uses, before that the dictionaries would have suggested such translations for the word sati as remembrance memory, reminiscence, recollection, calling to mind. The traditional Buddhist account of mindfulness plays on aspects of remembering, recalling, reminding and presence of mind. Presence of mind means keeping on mind. The the K is missing there because I added that little bracketed thing and I made a typo there, but that means keeping in mind. So, here it also shows you, mindfulness um, It's not just present moment bare awareness, but it also shows you that mindfulness is just at some point in time, some translator made the decision to translate the word sati, which in Pali has a very clear meaning of remembrance or memory, and is actually used like that all the time in the suttas, and at some point they decided to translate that word as mindfulness instead. And exactly why we could wonder, but now I'm going to try and pretend like nobody ever made this decision to translate it as mindfulness and see, can we translate the suttas in such a way that we don't use this word and instead mean we take terms like remembrance, memory, recollection, uh, reminding all these terms that uh, Rupert Gettin here mentioned, can we use those instead? Uh, actually, not the first one to do this. For example, if we do the Metta Sutta, which you, I know you chant here quite a lot, we didn't do it today, We may, it would have been good to do, but uh, in the English translation, one of the English translations says, at the very end of the Metta-sutta says one should sustain this recollection this is said to be a sublime abiding the word for recollection there is actually sati so you keep it in mind in that sutta to be kind to have loving kindness to all living beings so that's what it means sustain the recollection, keep it in mind it's very clear what sati here means Uh, If you would translate, one should sustain this mindfulness. It's very meaningless to me anyway. So that's why they don't translate it in this way. And they choose recollection instead, which is very good, I would say. So sometimes people do translate sati as these kind of words like recollection and memory. So I'm not suggesting anything new here, but I want to take it a bit further later on. See how we can do that throughout the suttas. Here's another one. This is uh, by Venomobic Bodhi again. Once past the bodh means past lives are to be realized or are to be uh, seen by memory, sati. So here. You, when you remember your past lives, it's also sati. So you don't realize that by present moment awareness, obviously, uh, because you're actually remembering the past. So here uh, even Venable Bodhi translates sati as memory, not as mindfulness. And it would be, I would say, would be a quite strange sentence once past are to be realized by mindfulness. Does that make sense to any of you? No, I don't think so. (laughs) If it does, that's fine as well. But to me, they wouldn't. Uh, And apparently to Venerable B. it also wouldn't because he chose to translate mindfulness here differently as memory. And it shows you that translators just make choices and you're often not aware of those. Uh, And if you are not able to read the Pali, it's uh, That's what I meant earlier when I got a bit stuck in explaining what I mean by uh, the influence that translations can have that you're often not able to see if you're not able to read the Pali. Uh, Yeah, so this is one more example where Sati is translated by, not by mindfulness, but by memory. And here is uh, verbal Sujato translating a, a text from I think that oh it's actually I've, I've got the reference right here so I don't have to think what it is from it's from the Tiragata, and it first of all gives you a very clear idea of what mindfulness or sati is about and it also shows you that also he doesn't always translate as mindfulness remembering it's a verbal form of sati, actually, that is used here. Uh, Saritva, I think, is the, the Pali. But it's like sati-ing, doing sati. The meditators of old, of the past, meditators of the past. And recollecting, that is anusati, that is almost the same word. Recollecting their conduct. Even in the latter days, or like today, even still, it is still possible to realize the deadlifts, realize Nibbana. So here you actually remember the... Uh, uh, earlier meditators, for example, including the Buddha. This is basically recollection of the Sangha, Sangha nusati and we did before also Uh, ujjupatipanno, supatipanno, etc., you could also include that under recollection of the Sangha. And here this is quite clearly explained. One way to do that would be to remember meditators of old. Let's say your meditation teacher would have died, and you can remember them. That is also a way to do sati. So here Sujata also translates a verbal form of sati as remembering. So now I would uh, like to introduce some of my suggestions to take this further, avoiding the word mindfulness or mindful etc. and seeing what else can we do if that word would never have been picked as a translation. So I'm going to take some common translations and rephrase them. This is from the Dhammapada by Gil Fronsdale. He translates, Always wide awake are the disciples of Gotama, who constantly, day and night, are mindful of the Buddha. And then the same verse is repeated for Dhamma Sangha and the body, interestingly. Um, this is Buddha Sati and Kaya Gata Sati is for the body. Uh, like Kaya Gata Sati, we also have Buddha Gata Sati and Dhamma Gata Sati and uh, a little bit of a free translation. Uh, are mindful of the Buddha, but constantly day and night are mindful of the Buddha, especially if you think of being mindful as present moment awareness, it becomes a bit awkward, I would say. So, I would suggest, instead, we do not forget the Buddha. You sort of, you keep in mind, somewhere in your mind, like you took this morning, you took the three refuges, doesn't mean you're constantly mindful of them, but somewhere in the back of your mind you remember that this is what is important to you in your life, these refuges, and whenever you need to to remember that you're a Buddhist, and then in a sense you recollect the Buddha and the Dhamma and the Sangha, so you keep it in mind, you don't forget it, is one way, I would say, to translate it. So instead of using mindful I, you can use to do not forget or keep in mind or remember Here's another example where I think mindfulness it just becomes a bit awkward I I think you should recollect your own generosity thus this is by Big Bodhi and then he explains how you should do that but I don't have the time to go into the details but And basically, remember the dana you did, the the gifts you've given, the time you've given to others, etc. Thus, you should establish mindfulness
1: internally
0: based on generosity. Again, I don't know about you. I'm just talking about me here. But this, to me, makes no sense at all. Thus, you should establish mindfulness internally based on generosity. Uh, doesn't mean to me much and Vicky is an excellent translator but sometimes it just stays a bit too literal I feel and you get these kind of weird phrases that if anything they need an explanation of what it means (laughs) it's not just clear just reading the sentence itself which is sort of the same with mindfulness when he calls it a cipher you can read into it anything you want because it has to be explained in a way Fair enough, but I would suggest something like this. You recollect your generosity. That is how you should remind yourself of your generosity. Yeah, you, when you recollect the good things you've done, the things you've given to others, and then you should remind yourself of that because it gives you happiness. And I would say we translate sati here as a remind yourself or something like that. Then it makes sense what the Buddha was actually saying with that phrase anybody feel the same way or do you want you to say so this is how i would some translate it something like this and by the way this is also uh this, in this sutta there is also... You should remind yourself of your kalyanamittas. Your good friends, etc. Remind yourself of all other sorts of things. And... Uh, yeah. To... That is what I think it means. To establish mindfulness. I think means means basically to remind yourself. Yeah, to establish mindfulness. Again, it's just a cipher. So I would hope to now with these examples. To show you that... Um, You can think of it in other ways as well as just mindfulness so taking this even a little bit further and uh, pretending like the word mindfulness doesn't exist at all and then translate it like with non-forgetful to not forget something it becomes a little bit artificial but i think it makes some sense i said this teaching this dhamma is for those who are non-forgetful not for those who are forgetful what did did i mean by that then you are non-forgetful with the highest protectiveness and non-forgetfulness this is how i now try to translate sati as non-forgetfulness able to remember and recall things said or long, said or done long ago again yeah, you have here this able to remember and recall things yeah, quite clearly it means something you you don't forget yeah you you're able to remember uh, this is just the draft translation as it says there also in the button but uh, to think about mindfulness or asati as the ability to not forget I've, to me it has been quite helpful just uh, change this perspective a tiny little bit and even just a change in translation I find sometimes influences the way you meditate sometimes because when you meditate you often To me, anyway, often I remember certain suttas that come up that are relevant for my practice at the time. And if I remember um, my own translations, that is the main way reason I make them. Uh, And if I I avoid the word mindfulness, I look at things differently. That's what I mean by the power of translation sometimes. It's just an option to translate it differently. And I taking that even, Further, let's say we would, would not have mindfulness as a translation, then how about anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing? And I would try something like this. Just This is just experimenting basically, but some people may be interested in this. So. How is non-forgetful breathing, anapanasati, practiced and developed so it is of great fruit and benefit? Then you go and sit in the forest in the shade of a tree or an empty hut or a dhamma hall. Or your home, where you cross your legs and straighten your body, or you sit on a chair, whatever. Uh, then you remind yourself, this is also uh, to establish mindfulness, is what is usually translated, but I would say you remind yourself to attend to the meditation ahead. And then you breathe in without forgetting and breathe out without forgetting. What don't you forget? Well, that you focus on your breath so you keep it in mind that you're focusing on the breath little side note here that the word for ahead for the Pali uh, scholars are those who are interested in these details the word for ahead is parimukha literally means in front of you and it's quite vague exactly what it means because we don't have much context for for it Uh, So, people have given it different meanings, but to me if you have something in front of you, it means something... In this sense, it means not literally in front of you, like this tablet is in front of me. No, it means in front in time. So, something that's ahead. So, you remind yourself, oh, I'm going to meditate now. Basically, that's what I think this means. I'm going to do XYZ meditation in this case. I'm going to be... Uh, Focusing on the breathing, I choose to do Anapanasati. So you remind yourself of that. You Basically, as we discussed last week in the meditation class, you set up the guard of mindfulness to attend to the meditation. You set up the guard to stay with the breath and not get distracted by other things. That's what I think this phrase means, but it is, is a little bit, uh, uh, as I said, the word "parimuka," which I translated as "what's ahead," is a bit vague, what it actually means. But I think this makes sense. So, translation of mindfulness. I want to ask you now: Has this trans what, what has this translation done for you as? I've explained, for me it's been a bit confusing because first of all in Dutch we don't have it and then in English it didn't mean much to me. So I want to ask you, what do you think about this translation? If anybody has some comment that would be very welcome because I can't share my opinion, but it'd be nice to know what others think as well. Anybody have something to add? Can be anything. You can disagree with me as well. That's fine.
2: I was just going to say that um, the word recollection that you've been using seems a lot more practical to me. Like, I, I think one of the challenges you pointed out with the word mindfulness is that it's so elastic that. It can mean whatever you want it to mean, depending on whoever's using the word. Whereas the word recollection, it's so straightforward in what it means that it just seems so much more useful and practical. Like, I, I actually never understood what people meant when they said, or what you know, a, a lot of um, uh, figures in the religion said when they said um, mindfulness of the Buddha. I never really understood what that meant, but if, if you change that up to be recollection of the Buddha, it makes so much more sense now. Mm. That's what I got away from this.
0: Ah, thank you. Oh, that's great.
1: Oh, this, uh, say, even during the Buddha's time, there were two groups of monks. There were the scholars and the practitioners. In Pali, we call it Dharma uh, and and The Doris. The scholars, they learned a bit of uh, Buddha's teachings from here and there. They looked inwards and then came to various ideas of Buddha's teachings, particularly mindfulness, and they have their own definitions like we had today from various teachers. They're confused, they were debating, they were arguing about this but got nowhere for a long time. But there's another group of monks called Vidashanadurish. They're practitioners. They practice mindfulness, as given in Buddha's teachings, Sattalatajipattana, the foundation of mindfulness. And they led to liberation. So that is what mindfulness is all about. It is a mind mechanism where you Uh, Purify your mind step by step. And uh, all those quotations uh, from the suttas, from Bukkha Bodhi's books and all that, is in various uh, sections of the Satipatthana Sutta. Now, for example, when you talked about uh, guard your mind to uh, prevent uh, uh, unwholesome thoughts coming and um, and develop the thought, uh, wholesome thoughts that's in the Chittanapasana okay, reflecting on the mind then you talk of uh, the enlightenment fact- factors where rabbis reflection and develop sati that's in the Sattabodjanga that is the Dhammanapasana it's all there, it's all in the mm-hmm. Satipatthana Sutta so Buddha has, is a, not only is a vastly developed supreme enlightened being. He was a supreme teacher. So he has given this to the mundane mind, depending on where you are, to use various stages of the Satipatthana Sutta for you to start from the body reflection, reflection of the yes. senses and the thoughts and the mind to lead to liberation. Yes,
0: thank you. I've actually got that leads us on quite Uh, quite well to what I'm going to talk about next. Yeah, sort of exactly what I was going to say. I just want to make one little side note here that often the people make the separation between scholar monks and practitioner monks as if people who study don't practice and if people who practice don't study anything at all. (laughs) Of course, it has to be a certain balance for everybody. You know, Uh, the Buddha said that if you Remember a lot of teaching is like having lots of weapons. Uh, lots of weapons available. So and it is useful to study a bit the suttas, my view. Uh I saw some other yeah. other questions in the back still or just just uh, things people have to say.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Excuse me. B- morning, Bante. Um, I like to know the dif- is there any difference or similarity of mindfulness to stillness, please.
0: Yes, that's a that's a good good question. Can I come back to that later, at yeah. the end? Because oh, I see. I, I, I will answer your question. Yeah. later. and then.
3: Second question is, sometimes it's very hard to practice mindfulness when you are in an angry mood.
0: (laughs) Are you in what?
3: Angry mood.
0: (laughs) Oh, but then if you realize you are in an angry mood, that is already the first step of mindfulness. Because you remember, oh yeah, I'm angry. You should try and do something about it. Thank you. Yeah. So let me... Go on then, because the previous uh, comment actually leads us on quite well to what I was also going to say. So a bit more about mindfulness in meditation, which is what Satipatthana is is mainly about. Um, Actually, I'll skip this slide. It's taking us too much. So this is where the Buddha talks about Satipatthana and what is the goal of Satipatthana. There are five hindrances, which five? Sense desire, ill will, eh? which you said about before, lady in the back, when you're angry, drowsiness and sleepiness, restlessness and worry and doubt. To abandon these five hindrances, you should develop the four ways of non-forgetful attending, which is just my draft translation here now. So you, what is the function of Satipatthana The main function is to uh, abandon the five hindrances to deep meditation. Five hindrances that stand in the way of the uh, jhanas, the samadhi. This is what uh, the function of satipatthana is. So, if you already realize, oh, anger is a a problem. And there's already one way of doing satipatthana. Or sense desire is a problem, or drowsiness is a problem. That is, you realize what the problem is, then you also can remember what to do about it, which is also remembering again, or recollecting what you should do. In case of sense desire, you might uh, recollect the body. And in case of ill will, you decide, do do metta instead. In case of restlessness and worry, You can decide, oh, instead I will do practices that calm me down, that create stillness, to to answer the other question that you you had. How does mindfulness play into stillness? Well, one thing is, uh, if you're restless, you can realize that and you do some sort of practices that lead you away from these hindrances. For example, Anapanasati. For example, it's is a good way to still the mind, become more quiet. If you're focusing just on the breath, it can be very soothing. It's just one way to do this. So this is what the Buddha said and developed the Satipatthanas to uh, abandon these hindrances. And this is how to uh, come to the uh, comment. This is how the Buddha explained it in more detail in the Satipatthana Sutta. And how do you meditate on a certain state with this Dhamma among the five hindrances, the five obstacles, Is another translation. And then this following passage is repeated for all the five hindrances, but I just do it for the first one, which is sense desire. So how do you use mindfulness in this context? First, when there is sense desire in you, you know that there is. Yeah, You know it, it's there, it means not just to know it and that's the end of it. No, you know that this is a hindrance and that it is uh, an obstacle, a problem in meditation. So when you know that it's like you remember the Buddha's teaching to avoid this or to do something about it. When When there's no sense desire in you, you know that there isn't. You know then, in that case, that you have a wholesome mind state. Without sense desire, so this is also like how memory or mindfulness comes in there. Another thing is, you know, how sense desire, when it's not there, comes to arise. So you remember uh, the Buddha's teaching on how sense desire comes to be. This is by unwise attention to things that give rise to sense desire. For example, thinking too much about the ice cream <laughs> or whatever your sense desires are. Also very important, you, rema- you know or you remember how sense desire, when it's there, gets abandoned. This is, of course, you re- know what to do. There's various practices you can do: uh, contemplation of the body, contemplation that ice cream is just food, you know, and even doesn't ice cream, nothing much nutrition in that so why would you desire it you know you remember you. for example you contemplate ah it's just make you gain weight or rises your blood sugar or whatever You you do some sort of practice to abandon sense desire so you know how sense desire when it's there gets abandoned it's a very important aspect of meditation and of mindfulness satipatthana and also, you know how sense desire, when you do abandon it, how you don't give rise to it again. So, you remember that as well. So this brings us back all the way to be- the beginning. It's not just about being non judgmental and just having whatever come up, come up in your meditation. No, it's the exact opposite, actually. Sajapatthana is about abandoning certain mind states and specifically the five hindrances. And when you abandon the five hindrances, that what arises instead is the seven enlightenment factors. And the suttas, those two are always opposites. Abandoning the hindrances means you give rise to the uh, seven enlightenment factors, the awakening factors. So this is how the Buddha explained sati in the context Satipatthana, this is just one example here, the Satipatthana is way too long to just do uh, in, a, in a couple of minutes, so I just picked out this specific passage, but it's quite clear that it involves some sort of uh, um, evaluation of mind states and avoiding some, developing others. This is a very nice sutta also which is about mindfulness. Imagine a wise, competent and skilled cook who attended to a king or a king's minister. The cook served him various kind of curries, sour, bitter, hot, sweet, sharp, mild, spicy and bland ones. The cook noticed the indications of their master, realizing which particular curry pleased their master. So, and the sutta continues, they see what their master eats What their master likes what the what the king or the king's minister what kind of dishes they praise and then the cook notices that ah this is what my is good to feed my master these kind of dishes they eat they like it it's uh, making them happy healthy and that cook would receive clothing wages and gifts why because that wise, competent, and skilled cook noticed the indications of their master. They noticed what kind of dishes the master likes. And of course the sutta also has the unwise, incompetent, and clumsy cook who does not do this, <laughs> who does not know who does not know what dishes are proper for their master. And they just serve them whatever. <laughs> and of course that Cook is said to not receive the wages and not get the promotion (laughs) or whatever. Why? Because that unwise, incompetent and stupid cook did not notice the indications of their master. What is this a simile for? This is exactly a simile for Satipatthana. Because, likewise, some wise, competent and skilled mendicant bhikkhu or bhikkhuni, or can all, it also implies all of you, all lay people as well. Some wise competent skilled meditator, you could say, might meditate on a certain aspect of the body, a certain sensation, certain aspect of the mind, certain phenomena. This is like Kayaga, kaya, kaya, Gata sati, etc. This is the four satipatanas. As they do so, their mind unifies. Their impurities are abandoned, impurity means the hindrances the five hindrances are abandoned and they notice the indications that that mendicant does get blissful meditations in here and now and does not and does get non-forgetfulness or mindfulness and awareness. Why? Because the competent and skilled mendicant noticed indications of their mind. Reading a bit quick here because we're running out of time, but the sutta is saying, if you're a skilled meditator, you know indications of your mind. So you know what is right to feed the mind, what kind of dishes to serve the mind. So you know when you're meditating, what is the appropriate meditation object for today, for this state of mind that I have right now? What is the right approach? meditation what should i feed the meditation in a way for example you sit down meditate you're quite dull maybe this is just an example let's say i'm quite dull and then okay well i always do anapanasati so mindfulness of breathing so that's what i'm gonna do right now breathe in breathe out you fall asleep (laughs) Because mindfulness of breathing is a nice practice, but it can be quite... Uh, if you're already tired and dull, it in, in often induces more tiredness and dullness. So instead of just mindlessly sticking with anapanasati, as if that is always the right thing to do, you realize, oh, I'm dull and this anapanasati is not helping today. <laughs> I should maybe try something else. Maybe you do metta meditation or contemplation of some kind of dhamma. Or maybe you decide, oh, I'm dull. Maybe I open my eyes or meditate like that. Or maybe I do walking meditation instead. Whatever. Maybe it's the right time to do it. actually take a nap. No? So you know the indications of your mind. You notice it. and You know... What state your mind is in. And you know how to react appropriately. This is what mindfulness to me in meditation comes down to. You know what's going on and you know what to do about it. You notice indications of your mind and feed the right practice to your mind. So... I hope that makes any sense and did you learn something new? I've got some more slides but I wanna spend at least a little bit more time for questions, if there are any.
3: Um. Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask you, you know, in some traditions they um, they talk about the accumulation of um, merit and good fortune, um, for example doing prostrations, full, full body prostrations in front of a Buddha statue or something like that, a mantra, these types of things. Is there is there a connection between those things and say mindfulness instilling your mind in meditation for mindfulness and what is that connection and how does that work?
0: I would say yes, definitely when you do frustrations to the Buddha, and you bow down to the Buddha and you just do it mindlessly, you just do the movement without thinking why you do it, then I would say that is not mindfulness. Because you're not recollecting uh, the purpose of it. So instead, you bow down, when you bow down to the Buddha, you take that as an opportunity to remind yourself of certain values that the Buddha has to you of wisdom, compassion, for example, whatever is appropriate for you in the moment. It's actually quite interesting as a monkey, we bow down to the Buddha a lot, <laughs> especially when it's around lunchtime, you come into the hall, you bow down. Or when we do certain uh, the Patimokha chanting, we, there's a lot of bowing. And it be, you know, sometimes it just becomes a routine, you just bow down because it's the thing you do. And in those moments when, to me, it just becomes routine and I just bow down, it's not very helpful per se, because you're just doing it automatically. But so I try to always keep in mind um, when I bow down, I've, I've sort of programmed my mind when I bow down, I really take a moment to really put my full heart into it. And really, uh, recollect the purpose of my life as a monk, uh, the teachings of the Buddha, etc. So that is how you then use mindfulness uh, to make those kind of ceremonial things very worthwhile. When you do that, you keep constantly um, enforcing these wholesome mind states. These you more often you re- remember the importance of compassion for example the more likely you will be able you will also develop it for yourself so then those kind of practices also have an influence on your meditation as well in that way but if you just do it mindlessly and hope that if you do 108 bows to the buddha that that will automatically give you uh, enlightenment or good meditation then No, then it's just a physical exercise. (laughs) Maybe good for your back, I don't know. (laughs) Or maybe very bad for your back, but it won't be very useful for meditation then. yeah. Any questions from online?
3: Yes, thank you Bhante. There's a lot of lively suture discussion going online. Oh, excellent. Very good. Um, A lot of comments and people responding to each other and asking questions. So there are three questions, if we can just quickly ask those. Yes. I'll just ask Irene, if she's still listening, to just please define what you mean by self-conscience. We had this question last week and we misinterpreted that as self-consciousness. And she's asked again about self-conscience. But, Irene, we would appreciate if just a clearer definition, because I'm not sure um, we understand that. So if you could type that in. I'll go to the other two questions in the meantime. Um, someone asked, you were talking about loving-kindness as a response to ill-will, and uh, the, the question was, is loving-kindness practice only to counter ill-will? Isn't loving-kindness an end unto itself regardless of outcomes? It certainly keeps the practitioner in a wholesome state of mind. Is it
0: an end in itself? Well, in the end in itself, uh, mindful or a meta won't lead you out of suffering per se. It's a very useful, very wholesome, very good mind state uh, by itself. But uh, in the end, the very, if we're talking about the, the very end of things, which I implied this uh, question is about, then the end goal is the end of all suffering uh for a, a nibbana basically and in that context to to just be kind although it is wonderful is not the end of suffering per se it always needs to lead to wisdom our practice it needs to lead to the wisdom that leads us out of samsara uh, out of the uh, round of rebirth out of suffering and then you have to take into the whole context of how mindfulness fits in there in that practice uh, comes into different ways, and how does meta fit in there? Is uh, it will eventually be an outcome of the practice, but it's not the goal per se. Somebody who is enlightened will have a lot of meta automatically, uh, but uh, and not per se the goal. It's actually. An, interesting uh, thing I heard that uh, I don't give give these monks names but some of you may have heard this story before but it was uh, Ajahn Chah took one monk apart who was supposedly enlightened and what Ajahn Chah told that enlightened monk to do was now to just practice metta from then on (laughs) so it does show you uh, something uh, that metta is uh, still very important to practice even after your enlightenment, but it's still not the goal per se. Yeah. I hope that answers your question.
3: All right. Thank you, Pante. The next question is, I tried to practice mindfulness in the kitchen, but I cut my finger when someone called me. <laughs> What's my mistake in mindfulness practice?
0: Yes! Maybe you're practicing mindfulness as present moment awareness. That's how I see you try to interpret it like that. Um, But if you interpret mindfulness more in this sense of a guard that I have been trying to teach you, then you would use mindfulness in this way. When I'm cutting, I need to be careful not to cut my finger and stay with the cutting. Be mindful of the dangers with sharp knives yeah so uh then you practice mindfulness in a different way you're mindful of the dangers involved with handling kitchen equipment <laughs> same how I, I work in a workshop in the monasteries when I have a power tool for example an angle grinder I am very aware of what can might go wrong there so I always uh, make sure when somebody gets my attention that I always have the my main awareness still on the angle (laughs) grinder, so I turn it off wait for it to stop spinning and only then I turn around and talk to uh, whoever uh, addressed me so that's a way to set up your mindfulness focus on the knife and how sharp it is (laughs) yeah and also it is often this is a good good point because often when we make a mistake or whatever we do something clumsy and then people say oh you weren't mindful as if you are not a good meditator if you cut your finger <laughs> which has nothing to do with meditation you know sometimes you just for or you trip on a rock while walking in a forest or something and then oh you you're not mindful and then there's this implicit connection to mindfulness in the buddha and buddhist part but those two when we use mindfulness in that sense, in English, like you're not mindful. Uh, yeah, it's something different. It doesn't really have to do much with meditation. If you're enlightened, you can still cut your finger or trip on a rock. <laughs> this is nothing to do with mindfulness uh, per se. So don't feel bad if you cut your finger while you're trying
3: to be mindful. Yeah. Thank you, Bhante. That last question, uh, Irene hasn't come back to explain what she means, so I'll just ask the question in case you can answer. Um, Respected Bhante, please explain the relationship of self-conscience, I think, to mindfulness, because every time I'm doing something, my mindfulness is checked by self-conscience. And then only... In happy, if what's been done i'm not quite sure the last sentence but there's something about self-conscience checking or stopping the mindfulness
0: yeah i'm not 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 really sure what you mean by by that by that question um something self-conscious stops mindfulness I, i i don't really know what what that means so i could Make sort of all sorts of assumptions, but I think I just make the wrong uh, wrong assumptions. <laughs> so unless you can clarify that somehow, then
3: yeah, no, she hasn't responded uh, to that request for clarification. So, yeah. are there any more questions in the hall? <laughs>
0: Yeah, so we had some comments about what that question might mean, but it will all be uh, yeah, a bit unclear to us what it exactly meant by that question. I think I think Irene is trying to ask some sort of a personal question, I feel, uh, which are always difficult to answer uh, when they just come from the chat. Even in, in person, it's sometimes hard to get down to these kind of personal things. So uh, I'm sorry if I can't answer that right now so I want to thank you all for listening both online and here and I hope to give you some new understanding about mindfulness not just being non-judgmental present moment awareness but being a bit broader you can use it in many ways I've just given you some examples and this is not the end of it Uh, so use mindfulness uh, more like a guard and as an awareness of what things are problematic in meditation or in life and which things are good and wholesome. and I use mindfulness as a wise cook who knows what dishes to serve so you know what meditation practices for example are the right are right for you to develop which one maybe not these kind of things, keeping these in mind, and also the, const, the idea that mindfulness is just one particular translation, which could be translated very differently. Keeping this in mind, I think, yeah, if anything, it allows us uh, a broader view, more opportunities to practice. I just want to one more time emphasize that there is nothing wrong with non-judgmental present moment awareness. It's a very useful practice. It is part of the suttas. I just think there's more to mindfulness than that. And let's now pay respect to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha and do it in such a way that we don't do it mindlessly. <laughs> really see uh, if we can remind ourselves of the good qualities of the Buddha Dhamma Sangha when, when we do bow down. In that way it'll be of much fruit.